Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, more than 308,000 U.S. women and children have died of COVID-19. That devastating toll has been borne disproportionately by black and brown people in dangerous occupations and at the short end of an unequal health care system. Workers in fields, factories, and hospitals endangered by the pandemic are now being held up as pawns as some lawmakers look to make workers' health and safety a trade-off for COVID relief. We'll talk about efforts to gut worker protections under the guise of economic support with Jessica Martinez, co-executive director of the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health. Also on the show, congressional hearings supposedly aimed at addressing concerns around the power of big tech have not been the best venue for those concerns. The fact that many Congress people couldn't be bothered to learn how to say Google CEO Sundar Pichai's name being the merest indication. The wheels of accountability are slowly turning in tech companies' direction. An antitrust lawsuit against Google, our guest says, won't address every important concern, but could usher in some scrutiny on companies that have been given a pass for too long. We'll talk with Mitch Stoltz, senior staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. Coronavirus relief package hits snags over details, ran a recent headline. One of those details was the health and safety of U.S. workers and their ability to protect them. As we record on December 17th, it looks as though Congress will pass a package without the liability shield, as it was termed, that Mitch McConnell wanted to protect businesses from COVID-related lawsuits brought by their workers. While that outcome beats the alternative, it's not cause for complacency. The measure McConnell wanted in derived from a bill introduced in July by the Senate leader's aide-de-camp, John Cornyn of Texas, that would exempt employers from enforcing a range of laws and standards under the pretext of shielding them from frivolous lawsuits related to the pandemic. The bill was called the Safeguarding America's Frontline Employees to Offer Work Opportunities Required to Kickstart the Economy Act, or, yeah, Safe to Work Act. You could call that chutzpah, but grotesque might be a better word. With many years of experience in public health and worker rights, Jessica Martinez is co-executive director of the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health. She joins us now by phone from Los Angeles. Welcome to Counterspin, Jessica Martinez. Thank you so much, Janine, for inviting me. Well, the measure that Republican senators led by McConnell wanted in this package reflected S-4317, the bill introduced by John Cornyn, which said at the time that it was aimed at, quote, discouraging insubstantial lawsuits relating to COVID-19, close quote. But what the proposal does or will do if they're able to push it through at any point is something very different than that, isn't it? Yes, it is. The so-called corporate liability shield, which in the faulty name of safe 
to Work Act is a terrible idea and absolutely should not be in our COVID relief bill. It's essentially a get out of jail free card for rich corporations, and it should not be in any legislation ever. If you or I do something negligent, let's say we have a bonfire in our backyard and it gets out of control and damages our neighbor's house, we will be held accountable. You know, our neighbors could sue us. And of course, we would be liable for the cost of damages to another person's property. Why should a corporation be treated any differently? Our government needs to protect workers, not corporations. So what made them think that somehow the pandemic gave them a special kind of rubric to kind of push this through? It was, you know, what we heard was, golly, this is such a hard time for small businesses and for various companies. And the last thing they want to deal with is a rush of insubstantial lawsuits, which, of course, that didn't explain what insubstantial might mean. But in fact, it actually is very, very broad. If you look, as you and few others did, actually down into page 55 of this Safe to Work Act, it shows that it's actually much, much broader than a quick read might tell you in terms of what it's letting employers kind of off the hook for. You're right. This liability shield is worth than it is advertised. When we first heard about this, quote, you know, get out of jail free card for rich corporations, the main feature was the companies cannot be sued over COVID-19 issues. But the language of the bill is much worse. It actually says there can be no federal enforcement of health and safety laws relating to COVID-19 issues. It also bans enforcement of other laws that protect workers, such as the fair labor standards, age discrimination, civil rights. And American workers are sick and dying and broke from this pandemic. So why on earth would you suspend the very laws that are supposed to protect us? You know, workers in our state and local governance should not be held hostage. As you know, this legislation is, is moving quickly in Congress, and there are a number of moving parts. Media reports indicate that Republicans may drop their demand for a liability shield if Democrats give up on funds to support state and local governments. Well, this crazy idea to let companies off the hook for endangering workers should never have been in any legislation in the first place. And why should cities and states be held hostage? Local governments have been devastated by the pandemic because they have lost billions in tax revenue. If GOP refuses to provide aid, they're defunding our schools, our hospitals, our transit system, all services we desperately need during this pandemic. It's like basically saying labor law doesn't matter under this circumstance, you know. So as I saw one write-up say, you know, like, okay, so if your employer breaks the Occupational Safety and Health Act by not protecting you, well, now you can't sue. That's right. If the grocery store says, we're not going to pay you overtime, you're going to work extra hours because of the coronavirus, you can't sue. You know, it's a number of things that you might be able to to bring action on, and the, the pandemic is being used as cover to say you can't do that. And currently, we know that OSHA has failed to protect workers. You mentioned OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which is tasked with protecting and enforcing worker health and safety rights in the workplace. This plan to cripple OSHA just when workers need it the most has to be placed in context. Up until now, the agency's response to COVID-19 has been totally inadequate. OSHA has been AWOL. The agency has medicine that could have been saved for workers' lives, and they left it locked 
in the cabinet. By medicine, I'm not necessarily referring to a vaccine or treatment. I mean legal and regulatory authority. Authority to issue a temporary emergency standard, authority to conduct inspections, to issue fines, authority to publicize fines against companies so other companies are encouraged to comply with the law. Getting into the numbers, about 11,000 worker complaints to OSHA have been submitted regarding COVID-19. And as of last week, just 279 complaints were open. That's just 2.5%. I mean, it's really, again, this legislation is worse and and could potentially completely destruct any protections for workers. Well, and, you know, media often frame things as workers versus employers, but it's obvious that undermining workers' health is socially harmful. It's not like anybody wins when people get sick at work and then bring it home to their community. And and to your point about OSHA, you know, Dave Jamison at HuffPost was talking about how ignoring worker complaints, not doing inspections at this time, it's wrong anytime, but it's also a missed opportunity because worker complaints tend to coincide with spikes in deaths. And so the complaints, as Jameson put it, are a missed opportunity to intervene that OSHA could have taken. That's right. And, you know, we know that the virus has spread from workplace hotspots into our neighborhoods and communities. Why would we ever let companies off the hook for such irresponsible behavior? You know, some companies have taken steps to reduce risk with social distancing, PPE, good ventilation, rotating shifts and other measures, but this has also come about because workers have taken job actions and have pressured employers into doing so. But some have been simply irresponsible. They have ignored common sense, public and occupational health measures and allowed the virus to rage out of control in workplaces. Workers have become sick and many have died. And the impact the impact itself has been most severe on black, brown, and indigenous communities who in reality are working some of the most high hazard, dangerous jobs in this country. So it is quite tragic. And again, it's terrible legislation. Well, and then you read a report that says, this was a roll call, but it could be anywhere, you know, saying that Republicans want a liability shield if employers follow basic federal health safety guidelines. And so I think it's important to kind of call out what counts as compliance in this vision, you know, and and the Los Angeles Times' Michael Hiltzig was maybe the only person I saw saying, you know, companies only need to say that they're exploring options to comply with law, you know, Um, or that they looked into it and it turned out they couldn't comply with safety policies. And that turns out to be enough. So that's the alternate. Right. And that's coming from the LA Times, where there is in California state plan. So essentially protections are a little bit better than the federal standards. It's really just OSHA in particular, again, you know, has failed us on all accounts. When inspections do happen, they're weak and inadequate fines. I mean, Smithfield, a meat processing plant in South Dakota, had one of the worst outbreaks in the U.S. More than 1,300 infections, four workers died. OSHA inspected and fined the company only $13,000. Right. Just a few thousand dollars for the life of each worker. That's just $10 per infection. This is a multi-billion dollar company. Yeah. So it is really just a slap in the wrist. And it just sends out the message that, you know, employers can do what they want and get away with it. 
There's things that you can debunk, you know, and and I was happy to see Eli Rosenberg at the Washington Post debunk the idea that there's going to be this wave of unfair litigation. Well, there's not a wave of litigation, period. In fact, businesses Mm -hmm. themselves Mm -hmm. are a much larger source of litigation than employees. And there's a lot of harmful and debunkable myths like that. But I feel like there's a bigger lie about a necessary trade-off, you know, that workers somehow have to choose between health and, and a paycheck, which, of course, is health, too. You know, um, this idea that this choice, oh, it's harmful, but it's really necessary because there's nothing else we could do. I feel like that's kind of like the big picture lie that we're dealing with. Right. And we've been doing this work. National Kosh has been doing this work for over 20 years. You know, we saw this coming. I mean, our work around ensuring that all workers have access to a health and safety workplace is deeply and intimately connected to other worker issues, whether it is a living wage, benefits, fairness, it's all interconnected. And these workers that we're now calling essential workers, you know, have always been essential workers for our country and our economy. And the reality is that it's terrible that we've been holding this relief package from workers for so long, a relief package that also does not even reach all workers that need the relief. We're talking about a lot of workers who are not getting, you know, whether they're immigrant workers who many work in these high hazard industries and are considered essential, are not getting economic relief. If they, you know, potentially get infected, there is no guarantee of a return to work, let alone paid sick leave. It's really tried to get all fronts. And, you know, again, our local cash groups are doing everything that they can to advocate for workers to ensure that this bill does not pass. We urge listeners, your listeners, to call their senators and representatives to tell them that the wealthy, irresponsible corporations do not deserve a get-out-of-jail-free card. The reports are accurate that this terrible liability shield will not be in the final legislation, but bad ideas like this have a way of coming back again. We need to bury this idea once and for all because workers are getting killed on the job and we have to do all we can to prevent it, not make it easier for companies to get away with murder, essentially. Well, we've been speaking with Jessica Martinez. She's co-executive director of the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health. We're certainly going to be following this issue going forward, but right now we'd like to thank you. They're online at koshnetwork.org. Thank you very much, Jessica Martinez, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you again for extending this platform. There is such a thing as a company simply having too much power. Even without evidence of malign intent, it just isn't healthy. That's the basic thinking behind antitrust law in this country. And if the power is over something so critical as our ability to obtain and share information... Well, that's the concern behind the push to break up big tech. And while it may seem quixotic, it's at least a step away from the notion that the Internet is such categorically new territory that it can't or shouldn't be regulated to serve the public interest. Several corporations are in the spotlight, each with different issues of concern. But right now, an antitrust lawsuit against Google appears to be gaining ground that our guest says has the potential to be very important indeed. Mitch Stoltz is a senior staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He joins us now by phone from the Bay Area. Welcome to Counterspin, Mitch Stoltz. 
Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, a quick bit of background first. This antitrust lawsuit is coming from the Justice Department and state attorney generals based on their own investigations. In layperson's terms, what is the complaint? The complaint is under something called Section 2 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. And that's a law that says if you are a monopoly, that is, if you have power over the market for some good or service, then there are things you can't do. You can't use improper means to maintain that monopoly power. You can't try to gain monopoly power in other markets, various other things. But what this suit says is they're claiming that Google has monopoly power in internet search and in search advertising. So those are the two markets they're talking about. And they're claiming that Google has illegally maintained that monopoly power, particularly through the contracts that it makes with various other companies. So phone vendors and web browser makers and various other companies that it does deals with, it often requires that those companies put Google search in a prominent position and not allow rival search engines to occupy such a prominent position. Well, from my point of view as a user, I mean, Google is free to me. So how would I be made aware or aware at all of any monopolistic power going on? How can a free surface also be a monopoly? Well, monopoly just means they uh, have the dominant position in the market and the ability to set price or to set the level of quality. And so when you're talking about a free service, often then what the courts will look at is, can they stop innovating? Can they actually provide an inferior product that people will still use because there isn't really an alternative? I wanted to ask you about one thing that I know that EFF has thought about. We think about privacy a lot. I think if folks think about who can see my searches, what do I do on the internet? I had a very smart friend say, you know, I just assume everything I say online is observed, you know, and I think there's this acceptance of a trade-off, you know, you just trade away your privacy, you know, and your civil liberties, and there's no way to get what the internet would give you without doing that. And you've been thinking about different ways to think about privacy as a value. I wonder, could you talk a little about that? Sure. In the context of an antitrust suit, right, that loss of privacy is the monopoly price, essentially where you know, if you're talking about groceries or gasoline, if there's a monopoly situation, you'll be paying more than you would otherwise. But with search, because it's a free product, the issue is you're not paying more in cash, you're paying more in loss of privacy than presumably you would if there were competition. And there is, by the way, there is competition. It just has not been really able to flourish because of some of these exclusive contracts or preferential contracts that Google uses. For example, there's a search engine called DuckDuckGo, which does not track its users. It serves ads that are not based on the user's browsing history, but only on the search that they're making at that moment. And it doesn't track them from search to search. And that exists, but it has a real hard time competing against Google because of, and this is according to the lawsuit, some of the conduct that Google does in a way to maintain its monopoly. We have to think about, and you note this as well, the power of the default. An alternative might be out there, 
But if when I turn on the screen, this is what comes up, well, then that's going to be what I'm going to tend to use. And I may not even know that those alternatives are out there at all. That's really central to this lawsuit. Many of the specific things that DOJ and the states are, are complaining about are the defaults that Google insists on, on things like the, the home screen of a phone, even Apple phones, as far as the, the placement of Google search. Right. It's kind of like if your waiter says, do you want Coke or Pepsi? You know, and well, you should have somehow sensed that you could have asked for milk, you know, um, but it's going to be people's tendency to choose from what is put in front of them. A lot of folks express frustration about lawsuits against mega companies because often what comes out of it is a fine. And we know that these companies just factor fines into the cost of doing business. But this Google antitrust suit isn't talking about damages. What, what is it asking for? It's pretty broad what it's asking for. It's basically for a court order to stop the illegal conduct. So you know, at this point in the lawsuit, it's pretty common not to specify what remedy that you want in, in very specific terms because it, it's going to be connected to exactly what the court finds was the illegal conduct. Right. They talk about injunctive remedy, which means an, an order not to do something. And they talk about structural remedy, which could mean a breakup of the company. But in Google's case, it's, it, and in the case of this lawsuit, it's not really clear what a breakup would look like. I mean, you could potentially you know, separate Google search from the Android operating system or Google search from Google web advertising or, or, or something like that. But, but none of those really flow directly from the things that the governments are accusing Google of here. So probably most likely what this is moving towards is uh, ongoing monitoring of Google's conduct and some rules about what they can and can't do. In that sense, it's very much like the government's lawsuit against Microsoft back in 1998, where they, they actually had pursued breaking up Microsoft into an applications company and an operating system company. And the trial judge actually ordered that to happen. But then the Court of Appeals said, we're not going to break up the company, but we are going to put limits on its behavior. And a lot of folks think that it was those limits and just being monitored by the enforcement authorities at that point that caused Microsoft to shelve its plans to maybe squash some new and upcoming rivals like Google, which was a brand new company at the time. That's very interesting. Yeah. Well, you make clear in your writings that, you know, and as you're saying here, that this lawsuit doesn't touch everything. You know, folks are going to say, wait, when I think about problems with Google, I think about, you know, the way they treat their workers or, you know, algorithmic bias. The story right now is, you know, the firing of Timnit Gebru, the AI researcher. You make clear that there's plenty that this suit doesn't touch, but that doesn't mean that it's not still a valuable effort, you think, you know, that it could still bring some things to light that could be useful? Absolutely. One of the trickiest parts of any antitrust suit is, is called defining the market. If Google really only competes with Bing and DuckDuckGo, then Google is pretty clearly a monopolist. But if you define the market more broadly, such that Google search competes with the telephone book and uh, Amazon's product search and uh, various travel search companies, you know, it suddenly starts to look like less of a monopoly. And that's often the really sort of fundamental question in an antitrust case. Just getting to that question and having a court resolve that question will really change the legal landscape 
for the tech world because the information that gets brought to light and the court's conclusions you know, are things that can then get used you know, down the line in other things in private suits in challenges you know, to all of those things, you know, to their employment practices, to their various other company policies. Each one of these is a building block, is, is what I'm saying. Right. Antitrust, though, is narrow, right? Antitrust is focused on the harms caused to consumers by a monopoly. It's not necessarily a vehicle for things like employment concerns or environmental concerns, although those do get brought in sometimes. Right. Well, it can do what it can do, you know, and then it's for others to take the information that is brought to light and use it in various ways. Well, l- let me ask you finally, CNN's Brian Fung seemed to throw up his hands after one of the House Judiciary Committee hearings that folks may have seen over the summer and into the fall. And he wrote, quote, the big tobacco moment isn't coming. There will be no damning self-incrimination on camera that leads to a dramatic and wholesale reversal of fortunes for big tech. The reason is simple. Nobody can agree on what the problem is, let alone the solution. And the companies are so large and touch so many aspects of our lives that it has been nearly impossible for lawmakers to focus on a single issue for more than a few minutes at a time. Close quote. Now, I understand that frustration with the hearings, you know, after watching Marsha Blackburn use a congressional hearing to ask Pichai, hey, did you fire that guy that said those mean things about me? You know, um, but Congress is one arena. The courts are another arena. We don't have to choose just one place to make these arguments for transparency, for equity in terms of the Internet, do we? We've got multiple fronts here. We do. And I think the states are also going to be an increasingly important arena for this kind of oversight. You know, when I tried to look up media coverage about the antitrust suit, I saw allusions to Google as used to be cuddly, used to be scrappy, but then it lost its soul and grew up or whatever. News media tend to anthropomorphize businesses in a way that I don't necessarily think is all that helpful. You know, um, you know, maybe we need some better frames to talk about how we can improve these systems that don't make it sound like, you know, rock'em sock'em robots. I feel like the tech companies, they defied gravity for 10 years plus there. They got an exemption from uh, the public's general hostility towards big business. That sort of came crashing to earth in the last three years. And ultimately, that's healthy because they should be treated with skepticism. As much as we love their product, as much as we depend on them, and so many of us still do, it's also healthy to cast a skeptical eye on them and to recognize the problems that technology can't solve, the problems that are human problems that show up at Google and Facebook and other places, just as they do in tobacco or oil or other industries that have been in the spotlight. We've been speaking with Mitch Stoltz. He's a senior staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You can find their work online at EFF.org. Mitch Stoltz, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you very much. That's it for Counterspin for this week. The show's brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR, based in New York, online at FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.